You're listening to the Q's Podcast, episode 33. Welcome and thank you so much for listening to the Q's Podcast, where we'll talk to credit union industry leaders and cross-industry experts for a wide range of perspectives on trends and topics relevant to you. I'm your host, James Lenz, Q's Professional Development Manager. Today's show is all about gathering a world perspective on digital adoption and digital innovation. Our guest today has been on several lists as an influential thought leader in the financial services, including eight fintech leaders you need to know, fintech influencers you should follow in 2017, the best fintech influencers with awesome blogs, and nine influencers that shape the future of payments, just to name a few. I am talking about the one and only J.P. Nichols. J.P. is a former financial services executive, managing director of the FinTech Forge, and chairman of Next Money, a global community reinventing financial services through design, innovation, and entrepreneurship. At last year's Executive Net, attendees described his presentation as off the charts, to the point, important and compelling, and extraordinary. You will see J.P. Nichols at this year's CEO Executive Team Network. It takes place October 10th through the 12th at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. He's serving as a fintech working group facilitator and as a panelist on the fintech panel general session. To sign up for this event, visit cues.org slash CNET. All right now, some key takeaways from my interview with JP Nichols include trends of digital adoption and digital transactions throughout the world an understanding of what stimulates innovation for financial services market, the key inhibitor for innovation, and a look into the distinction between leaders, learners, and laggards in terms of innovation. Now it's time to go straight to my interview with JP. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Q's Podcast. I'm really excited about this show because our special guest is a leading voice for innovation, strategy, and leadership J.P. Nichols, thank you for being a guest in the Q's Podcast. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Now, J.P., you are a champion for innovation, strategy, and leadership in the financial services industry. You have researched financial organizations around the world. In fact, you often work overseas with various clients. And one of the places you have worked on numerous occasions is Singapore. I have been there myself, worked with a client for a week once upon a time in my life. And I tell you, that is a mecca for trade and commerce. There is a lot going on there. Uh, You have worked there a number of times. Today, I want to discuss the topic of digital adoption and digital innovation in the financial services industry around the world. So if you don't mind, JP, let's start with the Asia market. Sure. Um, Let's compare that to other markets. Are you seeing a vast difference in the advancement of digital adoption in various parts of Asia? Well, yes and no. I mean, the, the yes part is if you look in Asia, much like the Middle East and um, maybe a little different to Scandinavia, those are the three regions where we see the highest adoption of mobile phones and then now into smartphones. The one thing about Asia, along with uh, the Middle East and the rest of Africa, is they don't have a lot of legacy infrastructure. So not only do they not have a bunch of telephone poles connecting hard wires to you know telephone switches, they don't have a lot of the same infrastructure around the banking. So what you see in those markets is really a lot of 
of technology leapfrogging. So people were able to go right to phones, right to smartphones, right to apps. And, and so it, I think we have a lot more digital natives in places like Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the part where I'd say no is where we do have traditional banks, they're still traditional banks <laughs> and they still have, um, kind of the traditional, um, mindset. Take a place like South Korea, which is where you'd find the highest smartphone adoption in Asia. At the same time, their banks are still pretty traditional and pretty hierarchical. And so there's a lot of conversation in Korea. I've I've been there a couple of times in the the last couple of years. There's still a lot of conversation there as there is here on are our financial institutions evolving quickly enough given how fast the rest of the world is becoming so digital. So a big concern there as it is here. Where, JP, do you find more people ready and accepting of doing mobile transactions on their phone? Well, certainly in Asia, and I also mentioned Scandinavia and, and the Middle East, you, again, you, you'll just find so many digitally native people who are carrying their smartphone everywhere and more of the infrastructure is being built around that. So the ability to uh, do commerce, I mean, you, you've probably seen the pictures in, in Japan, for instance, of uh, in Korea of, of a lot of vendor uh vending machines that are they're connected to mobile but you may be able to do transit there you're starting to see also a connection to things like transport so if you look in hong kong the octopus card which is a, a physical card right now but they're working on going digital where it's connected into the phone you're able to transact um, business not just with the local transport company but you're able to top that up at local 7-elevens you're able to spend that money on 7-elevens and other kind of, of retailers so the main thing i would say about asia is this connection of commerce e-commerce and banking where in the u.s we're so used to banks and credit unions being this kind of separate third party from your commerce it's so much more integrated and in china if you look at the rise of companies like tencent and baidu and alibaba where it's really integrated in e-commerce and the banking where the you know payments are just disappearing there and nobody really wants a payment experience they, they want to buy whatever it is that they want to buy and I think you're seeing that happen much faster in Asia. Uh, interesting. JP, in your opinion, what stimulates innovation for financial institutions? Well, I would say there's two kinds of motivation, bad motivation and good motivation. And bad <laughs> motivation is um, what I like to call innovation theater. Um, we've seen particularly some of the largest financial institutions in this country and in others who want to garner headlines by saying we've built an innovation lab and we have all these cool gadgets and we have all these people running around in hoodies and sneakers. And if that isn't really tied to a real strategy that's going to mean something to your members or to your customers, then it it really isn't very good at all and it isn't good motivation. Good motivation is creating better outcomes for your members, your customers, differentiating yourself we, uh, Jeffrey Moore would tell you that the only reason to innovate is to create competitive separation. Uh, I, I think there's probably some other motivations, whether it's improving the top line or the bottom line or the experience of your members or your customers. I think those are all good motivations. I, I think maybe the the bigger question is what motivates people to not innovate. And it's a lot of fear. If you look at some of the, you know, maybe major inhibitors of innovation at credit unions and other financial institutions, people will often cite things like budget, legacy technology, and their core provider, regulators, all of that. Those are not untrue issues, right? Those exist. They're constraints, but they're not absolute barriers. 
the real issue is usually culture. Yeah, that that's very interesting. That was actually going to be my next question. What are some of the major inhibitors? Uh, very insightful. What are some of the big innovations that you are seeing amongst financial organizations that you know have really made a difference in the market share? Well, I think if you want to look at market share, it's very popular to bash the top 10 banks in the United States, but look at the numbers. They, they control now, what, 80% of the deposits, 60% of the assets. And in my mind, a major driver of that is being mobile first and uh, being able to do many, many more things on your phone, including remote deposit capture, which is just table stakes at this point. Remember, that was a really crazy, scary thing. And we we're all figuring out all the risk and how the check fraud was going to happen there. And, 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 you know, fraud can happen anywhere and everywhere, but they are certainly garnering a lot more market share. So separation is beginning to happen there. Bank of America released some stats on their digital banking at the end of last year. They've got more than 20 million monthly active users. So does Wells Fargo. Uh, Bank of America talked about the share of deposits that are taking place on mobile. Now are growing quarter by quarter. I, last I saw, I think it was 19 or 20 percent of their deposit. The number that really popped for me, though, was the total number of customer interactions. Those that are happening on mobile are 12 times that happening in the branch. So for those institutions who are still very branch centric, uh, the idea of, look, you've got to go to where your members are. And increasingly, that's not the branch. So uh, I, I think mobile is still it seems like old news, but it's not. It's still something that's very important. One of my favorite quotes is from Bill Gates. We tend to overestimate what will happen in two years and underestimate what will happen in 10. So, you know, most of the pundits have kind of moved on. Mobile is yawn, boring, uh, but it's really not. It's still driving uh, the change in financial services and it's matching where our members are. It really is how they're living their lives. Absolutely. Everybody's got their device with them. Uh, still definitely not old news. So that's pretty insightful. I like those stats there. You spoke recently, or actually about a year ago, JP, at the Q's ExecuNet event. You are a big yes. kid out there. <laughs> oh, thanks. I enjoyed it. You referenced leaders, learners, and laggards. Can you define each of these? Yeah. As I look at the financial services space, I, I see three groups, and, and you called them right, leaders, learners, and laggards. The leaders are a pretty small handful of financial institutions globally, frankly who are really driving change and living up to the digital changes we're, we're seeing elsewhere in the world. Uh, there's a long tail, unfortunately, of laggards who are you know, kind of not getting it and maybe don't care, don't want to change. Uh, they like the way things had been for you know, the last few generations and uh, have their head in the sand about things changing. The group I probably enjoy the most and I tend to work with the most are that group in the middle. It's, it's um, good-sized and growing, and I call them learners. So these are institutions that know they need to do something, even if they're not exactly sure what to do or how to do it and how to get started. But it's people that are recognizing that just the business as usual that we've done for you know, decades and centuries isn't good enough and we've got to change and evolve. And um, so that's really what that leaders, learners and laggards is all about. Interesting. I was just going to ask, is it okay not to take a risk? I mean, do credit unions have to be innovators to make great gains in market share? Well, you don't have to be on the cutting edge. Most financial institutions are not going to be on the cutting edge, and they shouldn't try. But you do have to close the gap. And the gap I'm talking about is what I like to call the customer experience gap or the member experience gap. 
And it's the experience that your members are expecting. It's what they're receiving from Amazon and Netflix and Starbucks and on and on and on. And if that gap is too big from what they experience at the credit union, they're going to go somewhere else. Uh, you know, you can, if you kind of stay in the ballpark and you don't have to be, like I said, on the cutting edge, you can retain those members and you can kind of evolve kind of slowly. But I would argue the massive risk is not taking any risk at all because the world will kind of just pass you by. And, and one of the things that financial institutions kind of hidden, you know, I, I often talk about such poster children for lack of innovation as, um, you know, Nokia and, and, uh, uh, Blockbuster and Kodak, you know, the usual names. And it's not really lack of innovation. It's not that they didn't innovate. It's that they didn't move the whole thing fast enough because the whole industry shifted before beneath their feet. And that's the thing that financial institutions aren't used to. We don't have those kind of poster children. When we have a poster child in financial services of an institution that failed, we know what happened. They took excess credit risk. It's always the same cause of death. Mm -hmm. The cause of death of failure to innovate or failure to respond to market changes is kind of hidden because in, you know, financial institutions get merged away. We have a, a public policy that says, you know, the institutions don't just, you know, file for bankruptcy. We, we protect members' deposits. And that's a good thing. But it kind of creates undue solace, I think, for leaders that it's okay. We, you know, we've always been around. We'll always be around. And, and my argument to that is the, the industry will survive. But the question is, will you? Will you still be relevant? And as you know, as well as I do, when, when I entered this industry, uh, we had, you know, 14,000 banks and a slightly smaller number of credit unions. Today, we're about 5,000 banks and a similar number of credit unions. That number is not going to change. It's, it's going to continue to get smaller. And those that survive will evolve and be much more relevant to the needs of their customers and members. Oh, wow. Appreciate that. Yeah. So speaking of learners, you like that group. I think they'll like you very much, uh, JP. Uh, you know this. I just want to remind our listeners, you'll be a featured speaker at the QCEO Executive Team Network event. It takes place October 10th through the 12th at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas. This event is a great place to network with other CEOs and senior executives. JP, you will be leading a group of participants in a facilitated group discussion on relevant fintech topics related to strategy, leadership, and innovation. We are also looking forward to you serving as one of the three fintech panelists. It is sure to be a lively session. You'll be there. Sam Mall and Lee Weatherton will also be featured on the panel. And Kurt Kordaleski, former CEO of Beth Page Credit Union and senior managing partner of the Edge Consultancy, will serve as a moderator of the FinTech panel general session. Those two opportunities are a big part of this great professional annual event. I encourage you to be, if not in the cutting edge, to be right there and learn from each other and from these great facilitators and thought leaders. JP, in case people want to reach out to you, how can they best reach you? Oh, sure. Uh, best is to just find me on the web, jpnichols.com. There's no H in Nichols. That's J-P-N-I-C-O-L-S. I'm at the same name on Twitter. Those are easy places to find me. And, and let me just add, I am excited to join you in Las Vegas. I always enjoy being at Q's events, such great people. You're going to have it a great venue at the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. I know Lee Weatherington pretty well. I know Sam Mall very well. He and I just spent a week together in Copenhagen, and it's going to be a great group. So I'm looking forward to joining you. 
Excellent. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. I think our listeners will have some great takeaways and insights from this episode, and they can learn so much more by attending this event. We appreciate the global perspective you kind of provided us here in this episode. Thank you so much, JP. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast from Q's. If you would like to receive the newest episodes as soon as they are available, all you have to do is visit a podcast directory such as iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, then hit the subscribe button. I also want to thank J.P. Nichols for his time and sharing his insights with us. If you have not yet seen J.P. live, you certainly have the opportunity to do so. His sessions can really generate discussion for you and your team and make a big difference in the way your credit union is heading. Don't miss out. This year, Q's is rolling out a whole new take on our CEO Executive Team Network Conference, all based on your feedback. Visit cues.org slash C-N-E-T to learn more. For more talent development content from Q's, visit cues.org. That is C-U-E-S dot O-R-G now. If you're a Q's member, you have access to invaluable membership benefits to further enhance your development. Visit cues.org slash membership to learn more. Q's is an international credit union association. Our mission is to educate and develop credit union CEOs, directors, and future leaders. To learn how Q's can help you realize your potential, visit Q's.org today.